Welcome to the Pulse Podcast. I'm Amelia Sullivan. John Seip is a physical therapist in Minnesota, but he's not just any physical therapist. He's an EDPT, or an emergency department physical therapist. In this episode, John shares how he landed this spot in his local hospital, shares insight on what working in this setting is like, gives advice and tips to students and new grads considering pursuing the ED as a career path, and he even talks about the current COVID-19 pandemic and what he's seeing in his hospital. Here's our conversation with John. Okay, John, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, so let's get started by first having you tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is John Type. Uh, I'm a physical therapist. I work in the uh, emergency department in a medium-sized hospital in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, and I flex into the hospital to do acute care patients as well, but my primary uh, position is in the in the ED. So, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, the emergency department, or we're going to call it ED for this conversation, uh, is kind of a newer space for physical therapists. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how you uh, landed in this role? When I became a PT or was going to go into a P- become a PT, I had had a lot of broken bones and injuries from extreme sports, snowboarding, BMX, and whatnot. And I was like, I am definitely going to be a sports PT. I'm going to get people back on their skateboards. It's going to be awesome uh, because I had had to learn how to walk a couple of times. And I went to PT school, got into the internships, And during my internships, I had a really, really, really good experience in the acute care. And it sort of surprised me because that was the least interesting part of school for me. I just did whatever I could to get through those classes. Uh, Some of it stuck. Most of it didn't. But when I got into the acute care, the team was awesome. And I realized that I just loved the flexibility of the acute setting. But my interest stayed sports, uh, pain, spine, like those are why I became a PT. And so I was kind of stuck in this. I really like working in the acute setting. I love being a part of a team. I love the flexibility and the fast pace. But I'm really interested in sports and spine and pain. So what I did was I just, stuck true to myself, and I kept studying spine and studying pain, and I started utilizing the pain science stuff that I was learning in the acute setting with post-surgeries, with really anxious people that were afraid to move, and and just kind of building those skills. And I came across some research out of Australia that there was PTs in the ER that were essentially doing the things that I was interested in, but in the acute setting. And I thought, that is awesome. And I went and asked my boss at the time. I said, hey, we're in the acute care, right? We're licensed to work in the ER. So would it be okay if I just went to the ER and did my notes down there and introduced myself to the doctors? (laughs) And surprisingly, she said yes, and I was like, awesome. So I would go into the acute care, see a few patients, go down to the ER, write my notes, and say hello to the doctors. Hey, I'm John. I'm a PT. You know, do you, this is what we can do. And um, once the doctors kind of started to get an idea of what physical therapy can do, 
um, then I got permission to do a pilot study where I was able to do mornings in the ER for a month. Uh, and this is really an important thing because if you're not physically present in the ED, it's very unlikely that your ED practice will take off. Uh, because the doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs, they are very, like, on the spot. If you're not literally within eyesight, they're not thinking about you. They're thinking about getting that patient out of there and what's the next patient. And so as soon as they turn around and there you are, they're like, oh, hey, I got this person that uh, we're going to admit, but can you see them to see if maybe they can go home? Sure, that'd be great, you know. So – uh, we did that pilot study, worked with finance to see if it would be feasible to have a full-time presence, um, and it was, uh, both uh, in value, but also it, a lot of it in, in a preventative way, and I can explain that later, but we did that pilot study. Then I had to wait four years before I actually was able to go in there. Uh, the reason for that was low staffing, things like that, uh, in the acute side. So they had to keep me in the acute side for a while. Um, that really, really tried my patience. You know, like waiting four years to do something you really want to do is not an easy thing at all. But uh, I just decided, well, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to learn vertigo. I'm going to get certified in spine manual therapy. Uh, I felt like having a certification would protect me a little bit because, you know, if you crack someone's back and then they get mad about it and turn around, at least in court, I could say, yes, that was the right thing to do at that time. So uh, I felt like get, getting the full certification was, was valuable uh, instead of just the training. And honestly, the maturity that I gained over those four years, I think, was also valuable. So I... As frustrating as it was to wait that long, it was also helpful. Um, I had students with me, you know, right from the beginning. And uh, right during the pilot program part, and then we'd get these occasional consults. And then my student has become my partner in building the program. So we kind of have this awesome combination of myself with seven years of experience, but then my prior student was three years and we're both working this. And so he kind of, I had the benefit of sort of breaking down those barriers and, and, and I needed all that confidence and extra training to do that. But then now he's able to get in much sooner because, you know, I was able to mentor him and, and get him in there right away. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, we can talk about it later, but it probably takes about five years to start a program, but you can get, if there's a program already being started or somebody already initiating it, then as a student, you could get into the ED within one to two years. So just with the right training. Okay. So John, let's build off of that uh, a little bit. And, you know, considering students and new grads are listening to this podcast and, you know, maybe they're, they want to pursue ED as their path uh, within the profession. 
what would be your advice for them as far as pursuing this as a career path? Um, you know, kind of tips and, and things that they should consider um, to get into this field. Um, well, the ER, so to, I'm going to give just a little rundown of what we see in there, and that kind of helps. So 40% of the patients I see is probably home safety. Somebody, you know, is 80 years old, they use a walker, they broke their wrist, and now they can't use a walker. So can we send them home? Do they need to go to the hospital? Do they need to go to a rehab setting? What are we going to do with this person? So then that I will see them. You know what? Their balance isn't too bad. A quad cane will work. I'll get them a quad cane. They have somebody that can stay with them for a few days. I'll make sure that gets set up, and we'll get them home in their own germs, in their own comfortable environment, safe with a quad cane and a family member. And so in that way, we're preventing a hospitalization and exposing that that person to you know, the the hospital or even a rehab setting. On the flip side, sometimes patients come in, the doctors are like, get them out of here, let's get them home, and I put a dead stop to that. No way. If this person goes home, we'll see him tomorrow. <laughs> that happened to me the other day, actually. And so they admitted the guy, and, and then uh, we worked with him for a couple of days and then got him home safe. So uh, managing kind of those home safety is the bread and butter. And to get that experience, really the acute care is the only place where a student is going to get that kind of experience. So that is an important uh, uh, piece of the ER practice. And I'd say your acute care experience is probably going to be the most valuable for the majority of the patients you see. Now, we also see a lot of back pain, neck pain, uh, knee, hip, and that kind of thing. I'd say back pain is about 30% of what we see. So you also have to be pretty well versed in pain science, um, uh, differential diagnosis, kind of like maybe some manual therapy and, and exercises for the back and neck pain. And the reason why I say pain science is important is because when somebody comes into the ER for back pain, it's an emergency in that person's mind. And it might not be an actual emergency, but subjectively it's an emergency to them. And when somebody has pain, we now know that pain is oftentimes a subjective experience. And so you have to address their subjective emergency by addressing their subjective experience, and you do that with education, they're often too painful to even touch right away. And so it takes uh, sometimes a good 10, 15, even 20 minutes of education even to get to the point where you can put your hands on them to do an evaluation. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like the outpatient setting where they, they walk in and hop up on the plinth and you start having them do repeated motions or whatnot. So uh, being able to do education and and have a good understanding of the science behind pain has been absolutely instrumental to the practice in the ER. Um, and then vertigo surprisingly happens a lot. 
And I will tell you guys, I was, I couldn't do vertigo for the life of me. I couldn't remember any of those things. You know, I would memorize enough to pass the test as best as I could with the, <laughs> the smallest passing score. <laughs> Cause I, I just could not retain that stuff. Um, and so I had to do a lot of extra reading on vertigo. And honestly, I had to just make myself be uncomfortable. And so in the acute care, when there was a vertigo patient, I would volunteer to do it. And I would Google everything right before seeing them. And halfway through seeing them, I'd step out and do some more Googling and get back in there. And and so I had to just do it over and over and over and over again. And then after being in the ER, now I see vertigo, you know, one to even four times a week. So now I kind of get that repetition uh, learning and it's, you know, been real helpful. You can create cheat sheets and, you know, valves that you can pop up on the computer right with you. But um, but vertigo is another one that you're going to have to know how to do and you don't have to be good at it. You can be... Like I'm saying, I, I was terrible at it, but it came with practice and just making myself go into those uncomfortable situations. Uh, my skill set has always been uh, addressing pain and anxiety. So that's, that's been kind of the thing that comes natural to me. Um, and the other stuff I had to work for. And so everybody who goes into a setting, you're going to have a thing that comes natural to you but then you'll have to work for those other things. And the ER uh, will require that of you because it, it just takes everything to just a little bit higher level. You know, pain instead of 5 out of 10 is 8 out of 10. Anxiety is obviously they're in the emergency department, so it's really high. Um, and you have to – you only get one chance to see the patient. So – you have to be mostly right because it's not like you can say, oh, well, we'll come back in a couple of days and we'll see if that worked. <laughs> so <laughs> you do kind of have to uh, uh, do a little extra study to be in the ER and kind of figure out the best practices and how to, fig how to get that diagnosis as quickly as possible in one visit. <laughs> that, that's one of the hardest parts, but it's really – it's really cool when it works out, though. Um, so, yeah, back to what we were saying, I think if you're a student or a new grad and you want to get into the ER, um, an acute care setting is probably the best place to work. It connects you with the ER by nature of being in part of the hospital. Um, if you're able to help out in an outpatient clinic once in a while, that can be really helpful. That way you can try try out your treatments to see if they work. Uh, so one of the things that I did was we were short-staffed in an outpatient clinic, and so I volunteered to fill in for a couple of months, and I would just kind of flex my schedule. I'd work three days in the acute care, two days at the outpatient setting for a couple of months, and then back in the acute care. And I found that to be pretty valuable. Um, you have to be really comfortable with making yourself uncomfortable and then studying and learning from your mistakes. Um, and so 
that's how you're going to get to the point where you can see patterns quickly and uh, address a patient in, in one visit as best as possible. So, yeah, acute care is probably the, the place to go. And now for a quick break. Official guidance is changing rapidly as the COVID-19 pandemic continues to evolve. APTA set up a webpage to keep you informed at www.apta.org coronavirus. Please visit regularly and stay safe. We're all in this together. And now let's return to the show. Yeah, and I know when you were talking to me um, before this interview, John, you really emphasized mentorship and finding a mentor, having a mentor uh, in these expertise areas. Uh, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so have mentors. You know, if there's a skill set you want to learn, learn learn those skills from, from those PTs that use it a lot. Uh, you don't have to copy them per se, but just, absorb the information and then fit it to your personality. Um, as far as the ER goes, it's really helpful, I think, to have have a mentor. Like I was a mentor to my student who became an employee and a partner. And in that way, he was able to be part of the ER within his first you know, year of working and taking consults fairly early on um, in order to, to have that. So if you're looking for a job uh, and you're going to the hospital, ask during your interview, is there somebody here that is trying to do ER practice? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you would want to get up with that person right away uh, you might not be building the practice yourself, but you can work with them like, hey, can what do I need to do? And and and, and work with them as they're building it. Um, and I will tell you, some people might not want a new grad in there, but one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast is because I think that, yes, it took me six years to build this up and get the experience and get the skill set. But the cool thing about you guys as new grads is you're coming out of school very fresh on a lot of your orthopedic skills, your just you're really fresh on a on a broad set of skills, right? And what I had to do was constantly relearn everything because I wasn't using it. So I would have to go to a court or I'd have to go back to the books and kind of study stuff. I'd have to get a, a side gig in the outpatient clinic to practice a little bit. So like you guys are coming out of school with all the things that I was having to relearn all the time. And so you're a much quicker study. And uh, I think it's important for those experienced therapists out there that are worried about bringing a student or a new grad into the ER, like they shouldn't, you guys know more than we think you know. <laughs> it's more of a matter of building up the confidence and learning to recognize patterns and, and the communication piece. That's, that's what takes a lot of the more experience in, in all reality. So uh, don't be afraid to ask and find that PT that's trying to, start an ER program and just say, 
you know, just show that you're willing to learn and you want to get in there and, and that you're willing to take the vertigo patients in the hospital and you're willing to take those difficult back pain patients in the hospital and, and be asking questions and things like that. Um, if there's a place that already has an EDPC, I think there's like 23 hospital systems or something in the U.S. that do Arizona. I can't remember the rest of them. They'll, they'll, they'll surely be popping up pretty soon here, uh, at a more rapid pace, but, then then it's just a matter of asking, you know, if you can shadow for a while and then if you can go in there uh, once you're hired. So um, no no one can work seven days a week, so they're going to need people to work a weekend day or a Friday or, or whatever, and you just got to be willing to, to go in there uh, when the primary PT is not there. So, John, and, and you've touched on some of this already, but, um, you know, when I think emergency department, I think fast-paced, really high stress, all that kind of stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about the environment piece, the pace, um, some more about the day-to-day of working in this setting? And then also, too, I'd be curious to know what traits you think are uh, utilized most often. So when thinking about a clinician um, or a current student, someone who wants to get into this this path, you know, what traits are like highly utilized um, do you see as, as the strongest in this setting? Well, it's not a very good place for a type A kind of personality. Like you need to be somebody who wants to push yourself a lot, but you have to be pretty comfortable with constant change flexibility and everything you thought you knew isn't working. And so you have to be okay with not the perfect scenario because everything that comes in there just, it never seems like it's textbook. (laughs) It always seems like there's a red flag or something and, you know, it's just, Sometimes it seems like the patient leaves and you didn't do anything for them and you have to just trust that you gave them the best evidence and the best education and you gave them the best treatment and the best differential diagnosis you could. Um, but but every it's constant change. Uh, you have to be very flexible. Um, maybe, a, you know, maybe a, a type of person that needs, Stimulation, you know, it's a very stimulating kind of place to work. So if you're kind of a high stimulation need person, you'll fit real well in the ER. <laughs> um, you have to be able to get along with people, work with a team, uh, because it, the, the team you work with, you know, you have to be tight. Everyone has to trust each other. Um, you talk with somebody, like I'll talk with the doctor, then I'll go see the patient, then I'll talk with the doctor again or a nurse. And so there, there's just constant communication with the team. So it's not like in the outpatient where you sort of are a bit of a silo. You're doing your own thing. You might send an email, something like that. It's, it's a constant back and forth. Um, and part of being a team is, is being a good therapist, a skilled therapist, but also being human and not perfect and being able to ask the doctors questions or make a mistake and be like, oh man, I, I revved up their pain. <laughs> Sorry about that. Like, 
So you have to build those relationships in order to have more buffers um, uh, with mistakes or, or questions. Uh, a lot of the ED practice was actually relationship building. That was a huge part of building it, just asking people, you know, do they have kids and what do they like to do, et cetera. Um, as far as what we do, um, we work 9 to 5.30. I know that there's other settings that have like 11 to 8 or 11 to 7 type shifts. There's some hospitals I feel like that have a, a, a later morning, later evening, even later shift than that. So they have two PTs. Uh, we had to kind of, there's a couple of us that are the main guys. And then there's, um, there's a few third, fourth, and fifth string quarterbacks that we have, uh, that can fill in, you know, on a pinch. And so we needed, we needed to fit our ER schedule close to what everyone else's schedule is so that there was some depth of coverage. So that, you know, that's one of the reasons we did the 9 to 530. Um, I've been tracking every single patient I've seen in there, when I saw them, what I saw them for, and in the morning and the evening. And interestingly, between 9 and noon, um, that's about almost half. Like, it's a little less than half. So if we weren't there in the morning, we'd be losing a huge chunk of patients. Uh, I think some of the perception is that you have to be there after the school day or after the work day to catch those back pain patients. But a lot of times, you know, nursing homes send people over right away in the morning or someone skips work because of back pain, so they're there in the morning. Uh, so we found that it actually works pretty well to work almost a normal day. And I work real close with social work and case management as well. And so if you see somebody who needs rehab but they don't need hospitalization, that can be done if you saw them in the morning and they can get that ball rolling and calling for a bed and all that at a rehab facility. So there's not much I could do for somebody that needs rehab at 8 at night. And so they would just get admitted to the hospital and we'd see them in the morning anyway. Uh, whether I saw them or not. So in a way, it, it it does work pretty well to work kind of a normal day. Um, there can be times of famine. It can be kind of a feast or famine. Like I might go two, three hours without a single patient sometimes. And in that case, I will hang out with the ED docs for a little bit and just work on relationship building. I might study something for a little bit. And then I will reach, if it's been a while, I'll reach out to the acute care team and say, hey, guys, uh, any patients you would like me to see? <laughs> so then I'll quick run into the hospital, see one or two, come back to the ER, write the notes, wait a little bit. I kind of look at the, there's a there's a triage list. So when when patients are coming into the ER, the nurse, the triage nurse will kind of write like what they're primary complaint is before they've even come in. So I I know what the complaints are in the waiting room before they've even come in. And so if I see there's like three back pains or if there's a fall or something like that, 
then I'll kind of tuck that in the back of my mind. Okay, this person could potentially need me. So in that case, I'm not going to run up into the hospital and get stuck seeing a lengthy patient when, you know, all of a sudden they're calling me or paging me. So I do have, you have to balance, that's a balancing act between productivity and being physically present. And like I said, being there is is really, really important. Um, one of our, our leaders is an athletic trainer uh, in, in the administration in the hospital. And he said, he had a really good way of, of saying it. He said, if as an athletic trainer, if he was not at the games, he would never be able to help that person who got injured. And so to him, it made a lot of sense when we're trying to justify being in the ER even during times of non-productivity. If you're not, if you're not there, then you can't help the person when they need help. So it is, it is a little weird that way. It's a little different. Um, we do, I do kind of market quite a bit. And even having been in there for several years now, like I still ask for consults so if i look at somebody who's been worked up for a while let's say it's flank pain sometimes flank pain could be a kidney problem could be a gi problem could be a lung problem and if i've noticed that you know the board hasn't changed much on that flank pain person i might get the feeling that it's not a medical issue and so I'll go find the doc and be like, hey, is your person that has flank pain, are you thinking that it's a musculoskeletal issue or is it a medical problem? And they'll go, oh, yeah, 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 it's not looking medical. You want to see him? I'll be like, yeah, that'd be great. And then I'll help the doctor figure out a diagnosis because usually the doctor will just say something to the effect of muscle strain or something that they won't really work to get a diagnosis for that patient. So they'll use the PTs to get a musculoskeletal diagnosis quite often. But we we do sometimes have to ask for the consults. That was really, really hard for me at first because um, I'm just not that kind of person. I don't. I, I kind of felt shy about that, you know, like, oh, I hate asking for consults. It was very, very uncomfortable. But I did it anyway. I went out of my comfort zone. I'm glad I did. And over time, as they got used to us asking for patients, then it got less and less and less awkward feeling for me anyway. Um, and and a lot of the docs will appreciate because, like I said, they're already thinking about that person that needs CPR. So they're not it's not super high on their list all the time to get a diagnosis for a patient. Yep. We ruled out the emergency. Don't care what it is now. Send them off to outpatient. So, you know, they appreciate us asking because their mind is flipped to the next patient already. So that, that's kind of a typical day, I guess. Um, there are times, so I said nine to five thirty. if it's 45 and there's nobody that looks like they're going to need me, I'll probably head out half hour early. And then there are times where I'll get a patient or two patients at 4.45 and I'll be there till 7. So sometimes you leave a little early. Sometimes you leave a little late. Sometimes you don't get patients all day and you get a whole bunch of them right away in the afternoon. And then you're like, 
okay. <laughs> but that's the nature of the beast. You have to be flexible. So you mentioned the doctor who's kind of like going through patients and kind of just trying to get, you know, one patient after another taken care of, whether it's just deciding emergency, non-emergency. Um, so are you kind of working at that same level? Are you, you know, kind of like basically sprinting all day? Um, if, if I get like two patients at the same time or within 10 minutes, then I'll feel kind of rushed. Like, oh man, I, I don't want to prolong their stay. Um, cause that's one of the arguments against PT in the ER is waiting for PT to do their consult. And it takes anywhere from half hour to even an hour plus you know, sometimes depending on the situation or the pain. And so, you know, I'll look at, okay, which one can I get out the quickest? And then which one looks like they'll take more time? And I'll see that one first and then the other one. Um, but on, I'd say on average we see probably three, two to three a day on average. So if you were to average it out, there are some days they'll see – six, seven, or eight, and those days feel like you're sprinting. And then there's some days where you see one or two, and those days I'll start taking patients out of the acute care to get somewhat of a, more of a caseload. Um, so really, it kind of, like I said, it's a feast or famine. It's like you're sprinting or you're army crawling across the floor. It's like one or the other. Um but yeah, when you get when you get a bunch of them all at once, it can it can I I do start to feel the pressure to to get them out quickly. And I'll go to each doctor who has has those patients to be like, look, here's what's going on. I've got these three. I'm going to see his first. I'm going to see hers next, and then I'll get to yours. So I will be real quick to communicate my plans with everybody so that they know. Um, and sometimes, if possible, I'll try to see patients who are still getting worked up, you know, if there's not a risk to it. For example, like a vertigo patient that they're going to give an MRI of their brain. So I know that person's going to be around for a while. And maybe I can see them while they're waiting for the MRI because it's not likely a stroke. And so I, you can kind of, you can kind of utilize those situations too to, you know, you won't prolong their stay because they're going to be there forever anyway. So if there's one waiting for an MRI, I might quick see the back pain one and then go see the other one that was already waiting for a long time and kind of triage it that way. But, yeah, it, it's it really, for the most part, most days you're not sprinting around like crazy uh, in our hospital. Now, maybe some of the really large facilities, they're running around like their heads cut off, but not in a medium-sized hospital, um, not, not, not on most days. So it's spring 2020, and we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and crisis. Uh, so you are working at a hospital right now and you're in the emergency department. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and uh, your role, if it's changed at all, um, and, and kind of any experience you could share? 
And then also too, can you talk a little bit about how this whole uh, experience really solidifies why PTs should be in the emergency department and uh, why this is uh, an important place for the profession to be? So with the with the COVID uh, crisis, it hasn't uh, the surge hasn't quite hit Minnesota yet. So we're kind of in that waiting right now, and our hospital is way way down on census. Um, and so there has been, you know, some uh, people have gone down a day in their FTE, uh, pretty much across the board to kind of match that census a little bit. But the acute care PTs have been determined as essential providers, and so everyone is still working. Um, and the ED, even though it can be somewhat nonproductive at times, has also been determined as a, an essential position um, because if we can keep people out of the hospital, that is huge. And that's a, one of the guys I saw yesterday was going to get admitted. I saw him. They did okay with me. And so we were able to send them home safely, and that avoided exposing that elderly person to the hospital. And I didn't have – I only had two patients yesterday in the ER, um, but both of them went home. And so just one of those patients going home essentially paid for me to be there. Uh, when you're thinking of it from financial terms. And then the rest of the day, I, I kind of helped the acute care therapists out. But uh, another situation that has been happening is people uh, with appointments at the pain clinic or with outpatient physical therapy, they can't get in now. And so what they do is they come to the ER. And I'm helping out with managing their pain, getting them their PT exercises, getting getting a plan of care started essentially for that person uh, in the absence of outpatient services. So that way we can keep them from coming to the ER multiple times for pain management because um, we can kind of get them self-managed that pain as best as possible. So it's sort of twofold. One, can we keep people out of the hospital? Um, and two, helping those patients with their outpatient needs that can't get them, so they're coming to the ER to get them. Building off of that, John, um, I was curious if you had any uh, stories or experiences that you would want to share with listeners, whether that's a specific patient or experience or or just a memory uh, that you wanted to share. Yeah, I have two that we shared at the NSC conference last year that really highlight why we're there and the importance of it. Um, and one one is on the EIM blog, uh, Pain PT and a story worth reading, something like that, I think they called it. But um, it, it, this kind of highlights why we're there. One lady I had, oh, she was in her 50s, had some back pain, uh, had been getting physical therapy and doctoring for about six months, and she had MRI, which was negative. And so they were essentially 
starting to treat her as a chronic pain patient and, you know, giving the education and all that stuff and exercise. But she was getting a little bit worse and she was having a harder time doing her job, which required a ton of walking. So it she came to the ER because she's like, I'm struggling with my job where I have to walk a lot. And her pain was getting worse and her legs had all these ridiculous uh, symptoms, uh, you know, pain from the back down into the legs. And I started talking to her and, and they did an MRI of the lumbar in the ER and it was negative. And so in my mind, I'm like, okay, yeah, this is a pain patient. I'm going to go in. We're going to talk about pain. I'll teach her how, how it works and, and how the nervous system can be sensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll identify some of her stressors and figure out what the source of the, her anxieties are. So that's kind of was my, my game plan getting in there. But I went in there and, you know, one of the number one rules of pain science is you have to do a very thorough objective eval before you ever give pain science education. Because if you're going to tell somebody not to worry about their pain, you better be right. Uh, otherwise, that can be dangerous education. This is this is one of those situations where I started evaluating her, and and she didn't seem anxious to me. And now I had to throw all my plans out the window, and I start digging deeper. And her legs moved a little bit funny. Everything was very like slight, slightly this and slightly that. It wasn't just in your face. And I finally started. Asking like, well, where does the symptom, you know, the tingling actually start? And she's like, well, it starts around my belly button. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, they've been doing lumbar MRIs. So I get behind her and I start pressing on her back. And she had a jolt of pain around T6, you know, around the bra, bra strap area. And so I went back to the ER doctor right away. Even though he had just done a lumbar MRI, I said, I think you need to MRI her thoracic. I think that's where the problem is. And it turned out she had a tumor pinching her spinal cord. And so two days later, neurosurgery removed the tumor. And I went and helped her in the hospital a little bit. And she was able to walk again uh, more normally. And so that's a situation where the physical therapy type of evaluation that takes in a whole patient and their whole situation and their whole movement, you know, system with, with a, with a job that's a lot of walking. So you're kind of like, you should be amazing at walking. Why aren't you like asking those kind of PT questions is what found that tumor, even in the ER. She was otherwise going to be sent home, uh, con just considered another chronic pain patient. Another one that I had, uh, same kind of scenario, lady in her 50s, and she was uh, having a couple of years of pain. But in this, this case, the pain started with some life changes, life events. Um, and, and so now I'm kind of thinking maybe this is more of a pain patient. And her MRI was also negative of her low back. And... Um, and her financial situation had recently really plummeted, so her pain had really gotten out of control. And her pain seemed to follow these situations of high anxiety. So for her, I just 
sat and we listened and talked for a while and I got her whole narrative and story. Um, and a, a PT is the only person in the ED really who has the time to do that. And so we could get to the bottom of this because the physician was like, well, her MRI is negative. You don't, there's nothing you can do for her. So I had to ask like, well, can I talk to her? <laughs> I know it's negative, but maybe I can help her. And in this way, I'm going to help identify what she's carrying on her shoulders and what's going on in her life. And we're going to treat the pain that way. Uh, I did a little manual therapy and, uh, you know, did a spinal manipulation and didn't get it. So for you students out there, by the way, you're not always going to get it, but you just try anyway. Um, and I didn't get it and gave her some exercises. She started to feel better just simply by having listen to her by having give someone give her some things to start doing and uh and then I explained how pain works and she had several epiphanies during that that conversation and she was smiling and she got up and she was able to walk and I had her do a plank on the hospital bed in the hallway and she did a plank and she felt even better after that which was awesome and so here you had this lady who couldn't walk hardly coming in because of debilitating pain. They thought for sure she's got a spinal pinched nerve or something. She didn't. It turns out her pain was primarily a neuroscience issue. And so I addressed the neuroscience aspect of the pain and then gave her some things to do about it and helped her to uh, – give give her some hope that this can get better and when I went to leave she started crying and I was like whoa what's going on so I sit back down and asked her why are you crying and she just looked at me and she said before I came in here I left my suicide note on the bed for my son and if nobody could do anything for me today I'm done. And I was just like blown away. I'm just sitting there in the middle of the ER. It's chaotic. It's busy. But between me and her, it was just like silent. And so I just went and uh, told the doc like, hey, there's more going on here. She was considering uh, ending her life. And they got psychiatry to do uh, an interview and she was determined that she was okay and she was stable. And at the end of the day, you know, had PT not been there, she would have just had a negative MRI and been sent home with pain meds. And who knows what would have happened from there. And so these are two situations where our skill set, in a way, was very life-saving. Wow, John. Um first thank you for sharing those stories that's just incredible and and you know really underlines why pts are are so valuable in this setting and and so before we you know end uh this episode i did want to give you a chance to you know provide any words of wisdom tips or or things you want listeners to think about and consider uh when uh thinking about ed as a path? Well, um, the thing that I've been thinking about lately is just when you get out there, um, if there's something you're afraid of, 
like a vertigo patient or uh, a scary mobility situation, ICU, or or whatever it is, um, the sooner you face those situations, the better you're, better off you're going to be. They're going. It's those situations that you're afraid of that's going to make you a better PT. And um, get into those get into those uncomfortable <laughs> scenarios. Lean on your team. You know, you might not know everything, and you're never going to know everything. And that that discomfort, I've learned, never goes away. I still feel it every day. You know, I'm, I go to to a patient room, I read the chart, I'm like, I don't know if I can help this person. I still feel that all the time, but I go in there anyway because because we can help these people, and and by facing those situations where that's what's going to make us uh, the PTs that can truly make a difference. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Um, I know this this was uh, a really interesting topic and uh, one that I know our listeners will uh, get a lot out of. You're welcome. Thank you. To learn more about physical therapist practice in the ED, visit apta.org slash emergency department. APTA podcasts like this one are available on Apple Music, Google Play, and Spotify, or by visiting apta.org slash podcasts. I'm Amelia Sullivan. Thanks for listening.